the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. 262 CP, Bayonet Point, WTBN, Pinellas Park. Portions of this hour have been pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. So what Christ is doing in the Beatitudes is clearly expressing how Christians are different than non-Christians. There are no, I remind you, there are no commands here. There are no prohibitions here. They're just statements of fact. This is the way believers are. And in the second beatitude, Jesus is specifically telling us that believers in him are mourners. We are grievers. We are those who lament. We are those who cry. Does that mean that Christians ought to go through life looking like we just lost our best friend? (laughs) Not at all. And we will see why today on Verse by Verse. The pastor of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida, Steve Kreloff, is teaching from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Let's begin our study now and consider together what Jesus meant when he said, Blessed are those who mourn. This morning we want to continue our study on the Sermon on the Mount and specifically by examining one of the most unusual statements Jesus ever made. It's found in Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, part of that section of Scripture known as the Beatitudes or the Blesseds of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, you read this, and you know what? It just doesn't sound right. It doesn't sound right. And the reason it doesn't sound right is because this statement, this beatitude is a paradox. A paradox really is a, a concept in which two truths are mentioned that, that appear to be at odds with one another, but they really aren't. They just have that appearance. That's what a paradox is. And you look at this and you say, well, how could, how could one be blessed if they mourn? What does mourning have to do with blessing? I would think it might read, blessed are those who don't mourn, but it says, blessed are those who mourn. Now, someone wants to find the paradox as two truths, or a truth rather, that stands on its head calling for attention. Uh, that's what this is. Th- this is a truth that is standing on its head calling for attention. It is designed to grab our attention by startling us. It, it does startle us because it appears to be contradictory. It appears to be impossible. As I said, how can those who mourn be blessed? Because the concepts of blessing and mourning seem poles apart. They don't seem to to connect at all. It would be more compatible with, with human experience to rewrite this beatitude with the words, blessed are those who have no tears at all. That's That's how we would like to have it come out. But that's not what Jesus said. He said, blessed are those who mourn. Now, based on what we discovered several weeks ago when we began to look at the Beatitudes, we we saw that the word and concept of blessed doesn't really mean happy. It's not so much that. It speaks of God's approval. 
It speaks of his smile, his favor upon us. And so all of these are talking about the blessings in the sense that, that we have God's approving smile. Citizens of his kingdom have his approving smile. And here he says, those who mourn and grieve are blessed with God's approving smile. And yet, that seems and is so far from the philosophy of the very world that, that we live in, because the philosophy of our world is to do everything to forget your troubles. We know we have problems, but we don't want to be reminded of them. We certainly don't want to mourn. We certainly don't want to grieve. We certainly don't want to cry. As that old song says, pack up your troubles in your old kit bag and smile, smile, smile. That's our world. And the way our world does this, the way they tend to, to avoid mourning and just smiling is that we tend to overindulge ourselves in entertainment and pleasure, drinking it away, drugging it away. This is a world that has overdosed themselves on amusements. It is a world overdosed in amusing ourselves. And therefore, when someone comes along whose life is characterized by mourning instead of partying, the world considers them odd, peculiar, different. They don't want anyone to pour cold water on their party. But you know what? The being different, the being odd, the being peculiar is exactly the point that Jesus is making. Exactly the point. Because the the message of the Sermon on the Mount is just about that. As you'll recall, the primary theme, the primary and central message of the entire sermon is that true believers, citizens of Christ's kingdom, are different, different than uh, religious hypocrites, different than secularists. We are different. Citizens of the kingdom are different in the way we behave, the way we conduct ourselves, because we are different in our very inward character. We've been made that way. We've been made that way. By virtue of the new birth, we have been transformed in our hearts. Hearts meaning our innermost being, our core. We are distinct in our essential makeup, and, and our very natures have been changed so that the way we behave is based on, on inward transformation. So what Christ is doing in the Beatitudes is clearly expressing how Christians are different than non-Christians. There are no, I remind you, there are no commands here. There are no prohibitions here. They're just statements of fact. This is the way believers are. And in the second beatitude, Jesus is specifically telling us that believers in him are mourners. We are grievers. We are those who lament. We are those who cry. In contrast to unbelievers who do everything to keep from mourning, Jesus tells us that our lives are characterized by it. Not a little bit, but it's characteristic of us. In fact, in the parallel passage of, of this, in Luke's gospel, Christ's words are even more striking than they are in Matthew's account, because there he heightens the distinction between believers and unbelievers by saying this, woe to you who laugh now. I'm not talking about an occasional laugh, I'm not talking about having a good sense of humor, he's talking about a life that is characterized by laughter. He said, woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. You shall mourn and weep. In other words, those outside of his kingdom are described as those who, in this present world, they laugh. But those in the, in the future, those who laugh now in the future will mourn and weep. But those of us now in his kingdom as mourners will be comforted. I mean, that's the way the, the world is. The world laughs. The world's philosophy is eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow we die. Why wouldn't I want to be happy? 
I don't want to be reminded of sad things. There are problems all over the world. Don't remind me about it. And so the challenge facing us this morning is to discover, as we dig into this, it's just a very brief statement to discover exactly what Jesus meant by two primary concepts that come out of this beatitude. We don't need to look at what blessed means. We already established that. It means to be approved by God. But what are the concepts of mourning and comfort that Jesus speaks of? That's what we want to look at this morning. So let's begin by discovering what did Jesus mean by the phrase, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. I find that it's very helpful in studying a, a, a subject like this that's not easy to understand, that's challenging, to, to first eliminate wrong interpretations. What doesn't it mean? And as we eliminate them, we can begin to see what Jesus does mean. So let's begin by, by stating what Jesus did not mean by the phrase, blessed are those who mourn. First, we know that he did not mean that his followers should never laugh or enjoy themselves. And the reason we know that is because the rest of Scripture affirms there are statements in Scripture that speak of laughter, that speak of joy in our hearts. But we know that Jesus didn't, didn't mean and, and never said, don't laugh. This beatitude doesn't say, blessed are the gloomy and cheerless. I know there are some Christians who act like that, but that's not what this says. He didn't say, blessed are those who are miserable and never laugh. You know, the, uh, the Puritans, as wonderful as they were, had some distorted views about this. Had some distorted views, but Jesus didn't say that. Tasteful humor, laughter are presented in Scripture as positive things. Solomon said in Proverbs 17.22, a joyful heart is good medicine. It's good medicine. It's good for you to laugh. Not, ta- not talking about the world's sick, sinful sense of humor. But laughter is good, the right kind. Proverbs, 13, uh, Proverbs 15.13 says, a joyful heart makes a, a cheerful face. And as my dear professor friend at Moody Bible Institute, Irvin Robertson, used to say to me, he said, if you have the joy of the Lord in your heart, please notify your face. It's a good reminder. Good reminder. I think he said it not only to me, but to many. And you know what? The New Testament even contains a letter centered around the dual themes of joy and rejoicing. That letter is is called Philippians. That's what it's about. Don't let any, the basic message of, of Paul to the Philippians is this. Don't let anybody or any circumstance or anything rob you of the joy that God has given you and the peace in Christ. So we know from, from these other scriptures that Jesus couldn't possibly be stating in the second beatitude that citizens of his kingdom are characterized by a joyless, grim Christianity that, that has no cheerfulness in it at all. He can't be saying that because that would contradict other scriptures and God cannot contradict himself. Secondly, Jesus did not mean, this is important to understand, blessed are those who sorrow over the general difficulties and heartaches of life. Now, it is true, we do sorrow over those things, but that's not what our Lord is talking about. See, in spite of our world's distaste for mourning, there are certain legitimate, valid sorrows that you can't get away from. You, you cannot get away from it because they're just common to mankind. It, it, it doesn't matter your spiritual condition if you're a believer or an unbeliever. You, you grieve. Regardless of your spiritual condition, you will experience at some point the grief that comes with the death of a loved one. You, you, you cannot avoid that. That's the way life is. Job spoke about that, that, that being born is being born into trouble. That's the way our world is. Trouble, troubles often lead to mourning and tears. We've all mourned over such things as illness, 
physical pain, financial loss, extreme disappointments with people and, and, and things, loneliness, discouragement, the loss of a job, and on and on it could go. We understand that. These are all natural, legitimate causes of sadness and sorrow. But that is not the mourning that Jesus is referring to here. How do we know that? Because the mourning he's talking about in the Beatitudes has to do with what is distinctly mourning for Christians, not the world in general, but Christians. It's reserved only for the followers of Christ. That's the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount. That's the whole point of the Beatitudes. He defines for us the unique character makeup of citizens of his kingdom. And if he was speaking about uh, sorrow in general, that misses the point. So he's not talking about that. He's referring to a type of mourning not known by unbelievers. It's foreign to them, but it's a mourning that is distinctly for citizens of his kingdom. A mourning over over something that, that unbelievers can't relate to. They don't do it. They're not capable of it, but we are. So what might that mourning be? The mourning and grieving that Jesus is referring to is a spiritual mourning. It's of a spiritual nature. And that, that follows what we saw last time in the first beatitude. The first beatitude says, blessed are those who are poor. That's not referring, as we said at the time, to financial poverty. That's not a physical issue. It's a spiritual issue. We're talking about spiritual poverty, being bankrupt before God spiritually. And so this second beatitude also has nothing to do with mourning over the natural, physical events of of this life. In other words, what Jesus means when he says, blessed are those who mourn, is blessed are those who mourn over sin. That's precisely his point. And by this brief statement, he's telling us that one of the defining marks of a true child of God and a citizen of his kingdom is that we are broken-hearted over sin. First, our own sin, and then eventually the sins of others. And you see, that's why there is a natural flow in the Beatitudes. There's a logical sequence of the Beatitudes. They're not thrown haphazardly together. There's a natural order. And that's why this Beatitude follows being poor in spirit. See, the only people who are capable of mourning over their sin are those who have first seen their utter depravity. Their, their own spiritual bankruptcy. That's the natural flow of the Christian life, not only of the Beatitudes, the Christian life. First, the Christian recognizes his poverty of spirit because he sees how righteous God is. He, he sees that, that in light of God's righteousness, he has no righteousness. He is a spiritual beggar. He doesn't come strutting up to God. He comes as one who has absolutely nothing to commend him before God. He is convinced in his mind that he is spiritually bankrupt, destitute, no righteousness at all to offer the Almighty. And then, secondly, he responds emotionally to his spiritual poverty by mourning over his poverty, over his sinfulness. In other words, once you discover that you are a spiritual beggar, you just grieve over it. You grieve because your spiritual poverty leads you to see how utterly wicked you are before a perfectly holy God, and that causes you, it leads you to grieve over your rebellion towards him. You don't simply grieve because you know that if you don't trust Christ, you're going to end up in hell. I would think there's an aspect of that, but it's a grief over over the wickedness. You see your own heart, and you see God's mercy and love and, and holiness, and it, and it bothers you, and well, it should. See, this is the experience of every believer. 
No one comes into the kingdom without an honest sense of his own spiritual corruption and without mourning over that corruption. There are no, let me put it this way, there are no non-mourners in the kingdom. You're a non-mourner, you're not in the kingdom. This was the experience of Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah in chapter 6, that famous passage, in Isaiah chapter 6, he tells us of his experience as he saw a glimpse of God's holiness. He said, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple. So God gave Isaiah a vision of himself in the temple, lofty, exalted, and in his holiness, because verse two says seraphim, that's a form of a category of angel, of angels stood above him each having six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. He he couldn't even look at God. The Bible is saying God is so holy. And one called out to another, and here's what they said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah says the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filled, was filling with smoke. And then here's Isaiah's response. He's seen a glimpse of God and his holiness. And even as a believer, his response is, woe is me, for I'm ruined. This is grief in a heightened form. He says, because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When Isaiah saw a glimpse of God's magnificent holiness, he was a broken man broken man. Job had the same experience. Job, the Bible says at the beginning of the book, was considered the best man of his time. He's not the worst man. He, he suffered so much because he was the best man. He was the most godly man of his time, and yet his eyes were open to see truths about God he had never seen before. And at the end of his book, Job 42, verses 5 and 6, he said, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear. I've heard of you, God, but he said, but now my eye sees you. Now I've seen you in a way I never saw before. And he said, and I retract, I repent in dust and ashes. Folks, this is grieving over sin. You see, when shown the holiness of, and, and grace of God, we mourn over our own sin. We not only see how wicked we are, we lament, we travail, if not in outward tears, certainly in internal tears. Martin Lloyd-Jones explained it this way. He said, to mourn is something that follows of necessity being poor in spirit. He said, it's quite inevitable. As I confront God in his holiness and contemplate the life that I am meant to live, I see myself, my utter helplessness and hopelessness. I discover my quality of life, uh, quality rather of spirit, and immediately that makes me mourn. I must mourn about the fact that I am like that. A man who truly faces himself and examines himself in his life is a man who must of necessity mourn for his sins also for the things he does. That's exactly the way it is. See, dear folks, every true believer enters the kingdom with tears. You you enter that way. You enter with tears. As I said, it doesn't have to be, the Bible doesn't say that it has to be outward physical weeping, but always, always there are internal tears of sorrow for our many sins against God. It's not a, a casual entrance. You, you enter weeping. These are the tears that Paul pointed out of repentance to the Corinthians. He said in 2 Corinthians 7.10, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, 
leading to salvation. He's just gotten finished saying that there, there are tears. There, there is a sorrow that's not repentant. Yes, people, people are sad over their sin. Some people, sometimes. But it's a sadness usually over being caught or consequences. A citizen of the kingdom is grieved whether he's caught or not, whether other people know it or not. He's grieved because he understands who God is. He's grieved because he has offended a holy God. It has nothing to do with with personal embarrassments or being caught or anything like that. I remind you, Judas was very sad over what he did, but there was no repentance. Esau was very sad and even wept, but there was no repentance. So this is a sorrow of repentance. It, It produces a repentance which leads to salvation. In other words, when we come to him contrite and broken in heart, because we see ourselves for what we are, that is what Jesus is referring to. We see ourselves the way we really are, proud, irritable, bad-tempered, angry people, jealous, lustful, mean-spirited souls. And you know what? We see it, and we hate this about us, and we're bothered by these sins, and they cause us deep grief and anguish, because we know that we have grieved and offended our holy and loving God. How deep, how intense is this this grieving, this mourning? We want to be careful at this point that we don't minimize it, that we don't soften the blow. This is not an occasional touch of sadness that Jesus is talking about. He's talking about a deep, heartfelt grief, a, a deep inner agony. And the reason I say that is because the particular word that's used here in the Greek language that's used for mourning is a very strong word. There are nine words used in the uh, the Greek language in the Bible for uh, sorrow or tears or something related to that. This is the strongest of them all, and it's used to describe the deepest and most heartfelt, gut-wrenching grief. In fact, it is this word that is most often used in the Bible to describe the grief that comes with the death of a loved one. So, This type of mourning over sin that Christ was referring to is as deep and as intense as it gets. It's not a casual, once in a while, lighthearted touch of sadness. I want to take this a little bit further and and get specific at this point. And I say specific because there are some people who would acknowledge they're sinners, but they're very vague about it. They can't tell you in particular what how they've sinned, but it's just general. It's vague, it's it's general, it's um kind of obscure. And you know what? It's impossible to mourn over ambiguous sins. It's impossible to mourn in general over sin. When Jesus said that life in the kingdom involves mourning over sin, he meant that there ought to be, and there are specific sins that bother us. Not vague sins, not, yes, I'm a sinner in general. Yes, I agree to a doctrinal statement that says we're all sinners. He's talking about definite sins. And you see, that's that's the mark, one mark of a true believer. Unbelievers never face their sin. True believers do. True believers don't excuse their sin. They don't justify their sin. They don't blame others with their sin. They take responsibility for their sin. Just as David said, David did not in Psalm 51 blame Bathsheba for bathing on her roof. He didn't say, well, she ought to know that I would have been out here. What is she doing? He said specifically, God against you and you only have I sinned, and I've been a sinner from the very moment of conception. 
That's the mark of one who really knows the Lord. See, one of the ways you, you can know if you're really a Christian, if, you, if you've really been converted, is that a true believer no longer rationalizes away sin. They acknowledge them. They grieve over them. They're specific. They do not come to God and say, as they confess their sins, God, if I have sinned against you. When I hear people do that, I think, if you've sinned, man, name them. That's what the Bible means when it says if we confess our sins. To confess your sin literally in the Greek language means to agree. If I agree with God, yes, I'm a liar. I haven't just lied. I'm a liar. Yes, I'm, I don't have a little problem with pride. I'm proud. That's what the, what the Bible is referring to. Pastor Steve Kreloff will continue this study of the character of true disciples on the next Verse by Verse. We're glad that you could be here for another lesson from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Pastor Steve is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. These extensions of his teaching ministry are produced by Verse by Verse Ministries. You can find us on the web at versebyverseradio.org. If you would like to order a CD or a cassette with this entire message, please call us at 727-239-0306. Leave your name and a daytime phone number if you get the answering machine. I read that many years ago, Edith Rockefeller McCormick, the daughter of John D. Rockefeller, was hosting a party when a servant informed her that her son had just died of scarlet fever. Mrs. McCormick merely nodded her head, and the party continued without interruption. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.